a prayer. Father, there have been times when your word spoken, explained, attended to, and understood has had an unusually powerful effect on your people. We pray now that your Holy Spirit, working by and with that same word, would work powerfully amongst us. Amen. Actually, the uh, passage that I've been set this evening is two whole chapters of Nehemiah. That's chapters 11 and 12. So if you can just uh, find a Bible, please, and turn to those chapters in the church Bibles. It uh, begins on page 496. And I think I've done my good deed for the day uh, day by excusing Trevor from having to read out all the names contained in these two chapters hard enough as it was. Well done. Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12. It's been a long, long wait. 1,500 years before this this happened, the Lord God had promised to Abraham that he would make his descendants into a great nation, and that through him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. How numerous would Abraham's descendants be? As numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. Over the years, the fulfillment of that promise had sometimes seemed very near. Think of the Exodus. Think of the conquest of the promised land. Think of the golden age when David was king. At other times, that promise and its fulfillment seemed very, very remote indeed. And at no times was that, did that promise seem more remote when, despite the repeated warnings of the prophets of God, the nation plummeted into a moral and spiritual tailspin that that nation was all but but obliterated from the map and its people were carried away into long-term exile. Over the past, over the previous century, some of the Jews had begun returning from exile back to the land that God had given his people. But those people were still very much in disarray. No more a proud, strong nation. Judah was just a tiny province within the mighty Persian Empire. They were without effective leadership. Their identity as the people of God was blurred almost beyond recognition. And the holy city of Jerusalem was little more than a pile of rubble, especially with regard to its walls, those things that kind of held it in, defined it and defended it. Nehemiah, you will recall, was himself an exiled Jew and had become a respected official in the court of the Persian emperor. We learn in chapter one of his book how Nehemiah had been given permission to return to Jerusalem to oversee the rebuilding of the walls. And then aided by Ezra, 
the godly scribe, Nehemiah galvanized the people and they set to work on those walls. And despite persistent opposition from their enemies, they got the job done in less than two months. Well, uh, so far so good, and it seems pretty much to be job done. But there's something missing. Jerusalem is looking in great shape, but hardly anyone is living there. A city without people is just a shell, just a ghost town. The city of God needs to be a living, thriving, worshipping community. And so now, at the beginning of chapter 11, we find Nehemiah masterminding the repopulation of the city of Jerusalem. One person in ten is to move in from the surrounding countryside and villages and take up residence within those newly repaired walls. Just Just wonder in passing how ready we might be to uproot, let's say from leafy suburbia, into the inner city in the interests of the kingdom of God. Let's not forget that wherever you go, wherever you live, the importance of simply being in the right place, the place where God wants you to be and where God can best use you for his kingdom should never be underestimated. But now the rest of chapter 11 and the first half of chapter 12 is taken up with some of those long lists of names that we find from time to time in the book of Nehemiah. Most of the names in these long lists are otherwise completely unknown to us. But the list served a vital purpose at the time. Alan has hinted at the importance of such lists at such times because such lists draw on over a century's worth of family records to establish who really are Jewish people and who really are qualified to serve in the temple in Jerusalem. But, you know, this list of names was not only important then, but it has some meaning and significance for us today. I really do think so. A senior church leader in the United States has recently gone on record as saying that personal salvation is a heresy. The grace of God, she is reported as saying, is given to the believing community and not to the individual members of that community. Well, I suppose it's a decent headline grabber, but I think she's only half right. I think she's right in what she affirms. The community is hugely important, but wrong, very wrong, in what she denies, that the individual has no importance in the grace of God. Think about it. On the one hand, these lists of names testify to the importance of those countless numbers of individual believers who have gone before us. One Christian writer has put it like this. The story of Christian work and witness over the years is something far more enriching than a record of famous names and remarkable events. It's about millions of unremembered but committed believers, ordinary church members, forgotten ministers, evangelists, Bible class leaders, Sunday school teachers, sick visitors, caterers, cleaners, door stewards, and most important of all, undaunted intercessors. 
And let's not imagine that we ourselves are forgotten. History may never record our names in the annals of the great and the good. But you know, there is a book that contains the name of each one among the company of God's redeemed. The book of life. Yes, individual persons have importance. And thank God that these individuals unknown to us are recorded by name along, if you look, with some of their unnamed associates. But on the other hand, these lists of names do also confirm the importance of the community in the sight of God. Considering what was accomplished in the days of Nehemiah, none of these individuals could possibly have achieved it on their own. He couldn't have done so, and they couldn't have done so. There was partnership cooperation, the deployment of varied and complementary skills and abilities. There were priests, worship leaders, prayers, thanksgivers, musicians, singers, administrators, security guards, look it up, and others. You can't have a choir of one or a band that consists of one solitary double bass. Each is dependent on the contribution of the others. There's no point in having a priest if there are no people to represent to God. What's the point of having a leader if there's no one there to lead? Think of Paul's image of the body in 1 Corinthians, led by Christ, the head, but each individual part serving the head and working cooperatively with, cooperatively with the other parts for the glory of God. Yes, the individual in community is what it's all about. When I was young, rather a long time ago now, we used to sing a little song, a very simple song, but it went like this, and I've never, never forgotten it. One man's hands can't tear a prison down. I'll start again. One man's hands can't tear a prison down. Two men's hands can't tear a prison down, but if two and two and fifty make a million, we'll see that day come round. The cumulative and additive effect of individuals working together for the service and glory of God. Yes, indeed, it's by the cooperative effort of differently gifted individuals that God built then and continues to build now his kingdom. The individual and the community are both precious in his sight. And it's to that believing community that we now turn our attention in, as we turn now over the page, to the second half of chapter 12. That is to say from verse 27 onwards and this great celebration event. For there is just one gloriously happy job left for Nehemiah to do. See those city walls? Just two months before, remember, they had been in ruins. Do you remember how Nehemiah had conducted a furtive nighttime inspection of what was left of the city walls back in chapter 2? But now there's to be a public dedication of the complete, completed building work. 
Do you recall how Sanballat and Tobiah had tried in every way to undermine that project? Tobiah had mocked them all by saying that if even a fox climbed onto the walls, they would collapse. Chapter 4 and verse 3. But now the people are going to march around the city on top of those walls, making a thorough and uninhibited din. As verse 27 of chapter 12 puts it, they were going to celebrate joyfully the dedication of the walls with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps and lyres. Just an old-fashioned equivalent to cymbals, keyboard and guitar. Please note that this was not to be an act of self-congratulation. It was rather an act of thanksgiving. The people might have been tempted to say, well, with good leadership and hard work, we did this all ourselves. And they might then have congratulated one another with awards, prizes, speeches and honorary degrees. They had indeed been well led and they had certainly worked hard. Well, most of them had. But the thanks and praise are due to God. Why? What had God done? No miracles are recorded in the book of Nehemiah, as far as I can see. But God had nevertheless been at work all along. All the way through this book, there is this powerful sense that God is at work in and through the efforts of ordinary people who will dedicate time, talents and treasure to the work of his kingdom. The contributions made by the people are not ignored but God is given the glory. Even their enemies, chapter 6 and verse 16, even their enemies realised that this work had been done with the help of their God. In all our work for God's kingdom, one plants and another sows, but it's always God who gives the increase. So if someone asks you, well, where is God at work in his church today? The answer is... Wherever God's truth is proclaimed, wherever God's face is sought in prayer, wherever God's character as loving, just, and faithful is honoured, wherever the, the, the good news about Jesus is shared with one needy soul, wherever some act of kindness is done in Jesus' name, wherever, wherever the Holy Spirit is depended upon for deeper holiness and greater effectiveness, there God is at work. And there is cause for celebration and joy. These people are celebrating then because, as it says in verse 43, God had given them great joy. Singing and thanksgiving are key characteristics of the people who worship the one true and living God. Forget for the moment about religious words like joy and blessedness. Christians are happy people, and we worship a happy God. Have you thought about that? God is pleased with this wonderful creation. He's pleased most of all with the pinnacle of creation, men and women made in his image. He is pleased with the work that his beloved son has done to redeem that creation. He is pleased with the work of his hands. God is a happy God. 
None of the religions or philosophies of this world sings and makes music as Christians can. It has been said that the Stoic bears, the Epicurean seeks to enjoy, the Buddhist and Hindu stand apart disillusioned, the Muslim submits, but only the Christian exults. Our music makes, or should make, if we help our musicians who lead us by filling our lungs and singing God's praises aright. Our music makes the sing-alongs of the pub, the chants of the football ground, and the anthems of the rock concert seem like cheap and tawdry imitations. And as for the musical celebrations of unbelievers, I don't want to be unkind, but let me tell you a little story. Susan Blackmore is a rather outspoken atheist. She recently got married to Adam Hart Davis, whose name you may know from the telly. They thought that people would like a bit of a sing at their wedding. So do you know what they chose? Christian hymns with God taken out. One of them that they chose was Morning Has Broken with God Taken Out. And there isn't much God in there in the first place. (laughs) And the other one, another one that they chose was that hymn that's got Bread of Heaven in it. Guide, guide me over how great Jehovah, bread of heaven, but the words change to bread of Devon. Hilarious. They rejoiced. They were happy. They celebrated. And why not? We can't always be on the high, coming back from Keswick, new wine, word alive. But we are characteristically happy people. And this then, this celebration of the completion of the walls of Jerusalem has been the climax of Nehemiah's career and of of this book that bears his name. The nation has been refounded as the people of God after the desolation of the exile. The holy city of Jerusalem has been restored as an active, worshipping community, well protected by those impressive walls. And verse 43 tells us that the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away, women and children adding to that chorus of praise. I suppose that if the book of Nehemiah were a fairy tale, it would end at this point. And it would say, and they all lived happily ever after. But did they? Did the people keep their promise not to neglect the house of God? Chapter 10 and verse 39. Did those two rogues, Tobiah and Sanballat, finally slink away and leave God's people in peace? And what do we now make of God's ancient promise to Abraham? God's people may be restored to their ancient land, dedicated to his service in the holy city. But can we really say that everything is now complete, that God's promise has been fulfilled, that the long wait is finally and completely over? Have we at last arrived at the time, the promised time, when the earth shall be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea? Well, for answers to these questions we must look to chapter 13, 
which lowers the curtain, not only on the book of Nehemiah, but also on the entire Old Testament record, historically speaking. I look forward to finding out what next week's preacher has to say about that. For the time being, let us pray. Thank you, Father, that not one member of and worker in your kingdom is forgotten by you. Thank you that each of us has a place and a part to play in the onward development and building and success of your kingdom. But thank you too that we can be a people who rejoice. We can rejoice more than those people then because we have so much more, for we have Jesus. We have fullness of salvation. We may not yet have consummation, but we have so much to be thankful for. May we be a thankful, praising, rejoicing people as we gather for these weekly celebrations on Sundays and during the week as we go about our daily business. May we be people with joy in our hearts and songs on our lips. Amen.